Well, can anyone name singer this month? Linda? Yes, Bob Dylan, very good. Well, maybe singing is pushing it a bit, but uh, croaking. Now, maybe you think that Bob gets a little carried away there with his list of broken things. But I do think that he's on to something. Most of our time and most of our energy and our thinking seems to go into dealing with things that don't work. We could start with your car. Years ago, when I was about 17, my dad told me that I'd never have money in my pocket so long as I had a car. And that's pretty much how it works out. And then what about our bodies? Physically, how often do any of us feel 100%? What about mentally, emotionally? Every year, doctors fill out millions of prescriptions for sleeping pills and antidepressants. In terms of relationships, how often do we get through even a week without some sort of misunderstanding or conflict with another person? Why is it that so many marriages end in divorce? Is it really because they all got married to the wrong person? Or is there some deeper problem in human relationships? And if we think about international relationships, has there ever been a time in history when there hasn't been a war going on somewhere? At the moment, we are quite insulated from this here in England. The last time we were under threat was in the 1940s. And then Dad's army came to the rescue. But in other parts of the world, there are many people who've never known what it's like to live in a time of peace. One way or another, the evidence tells us that everything is broken. Bob is right. And the first step to finding a solution to a problem is to understand the problem. So I want us to think now about the Bible's explanation of the problem. And that explanation is given to us in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And I'll be putting the verses we're going to look at on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about that. The last time, a month ago, we went back to the very first pages of the Bible. And we saw that every human being, according to the Bible is born with great inbuilt dignity. According to the Bible, we are made in the image of God. We are genuinely like Him. We're not the same as Him. We're not equal to Him, but we are like Him. And there is no greater dignity than being made in the image of the Creator of the universe. We were made by him, and the Bible says we were made for him. Last time we said we are most fully human when we're living in relationship to God and living to serve God. That's what we were made for. And we saw that God put the first man in the Garden of Eden, and he gave the man the dignity of responsibility. The man was to take care of God's creation under God's authority. 
And this is how it's put to the man in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Those verses set out the way things are meant to be. Humanity has responsibility, and there's great dignity in that, in being entrusted with that. And at the same time, humanity is not supposed to be a law unto itself. Humanity is supposed to be under the authority of God. That's how we're supposed to function. That's the way we were created to live. And you'll notice the specific command God gives here is don't eat from a particular tree. And it's been pointed out that the tree is not the important part of this. The crucial part is that God has set a choice before the man to obey or disobey. God could just as well have said, don't cross this stream or don't climb that mountain. The key point is that the man is called to obey. And a writer called Francis Schaeffer sums it up for us like this. God is saying to the man, believe me and stand in your place as a creature. Not as one who is autonomous. In other words, not as one who is a law unto himself. Believe me and love me as a creature to his creator and all will be well. This is the place for which I have made you. God is making clear to the man that life is only going to work for the man so long as he lives it under God's authority. My car only works when I put petrol in the tank. I'm free to pump it full of diesel if I want. But the manual makes it clear to me it won't work on diesel. And in a similar way, God made it clear from the beginning that life isn't going to work for us if we live it as if we're the final authority. If we live it like we know best. If we go back to Genesis 2, those verses we read a moment ago, God mentions there the knowledge of good and evil. Now that does not mean knowing the difference between good and evil. The man already did know that. He knew that obeying God was good and disobeying him was bad. How do we know the man knew that? Because God has just told him. Obey me, don't disobey me. The man doesn't have to eat from any tree to know the difference between right and wrong. So then what is the problem here? Why does God tell him not to eat? What knowledge of good and evil will the man get? Well, if he reaches out his hand and eats from the forbidden tree, the man will be making the choice to put himself against God's authority. By disobeying God's command, the man will be saying, I'm going to decide for myself what's right and wrong. I'm going to claim God's place for myself. God has told me that final authority belongs to him, 
but I'm claiming final authority for myself. I'm making a declaration that I know best. No one tells me what I should and shouldn't do. In Genesis chapter 2, the knowledge of good and evil means the right to determine for myself what is good and what is evil. It means the authority to write the rules for my own life. And this is how a writer called Herman Bavinck puts it. He says, the knowledge of good and evil is not the knowledge of the useful and the harmful, of the world and how to control it, but the right and capacity to distinguish good and evil on one's own. That's what we're talking about. And Bavinck goes on to say, the question in Genesis 2 is this, will humanity depend on and submit to God, or will humanity try its own luck? Well, Genesis 3 tells us humanity did try its own luck. When the serpent tempts Eve, his selling point is to say to her, take control. Break free from life under God's authority. Take that authority for yourself. God's just trying to hold you back and keep you down. He says to her, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The woman and the man don't need too much encouragement from the serpent. The idea of taking God's place is desirable to them. They're attracted to the prospect. But the moment they assert their own authority, in that moment something breaks. This is often referred to as the fall. But a better description might be the rupture or the separation. The proper relationship between the creator, creator and the creature has been broken. And because that is broken, everything is broken. It's like me pumping my car full of diesel. The moment I do that, nothing that follows is going to go well. And that's what we find. The first aspect of the brokenness that comes to light is the man and woman's understanding of themselves. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Think for a moment about the way Christianity is often portrayed today. It's portrayed as repressive, isn't it? We're told it represses your sexuality. It represses your enjoyment of your body. Now those accusations come about because people realize that we have no end of problems connected to our sexuality. And we have no end of problems connected to our view of our own bodies. And people see those problems and they want to blame them on something. So they say it must all trace back to this repressive influence of Christianity. But in reality, the opposite is true. 
The Bible says God made the first man and woman as properly functioning sexual beings. God made them wonderfully unself-conscious about their bodies. The problems came from humanity's desire to take God's place. That's where our sexual brokenness comes from. That's where our obsessive self-consciousness about our bodies comes from. Those things weren't broken when God created humanity. And studies in sociology back the Bible up on this. Those studies show that in sexual terms, the healthiest and most fulfilled people are those living in obedience to God. It's the same with body image. And it makes sense. God knows how we function best in those areas. He made those aspects of us. And those things run most smoothly when they are submitted to his authority. It's when we try and make up the rules for ourselves in those areas, that's when it all falls apart for us. So don't buy into the lie that says submitting your life to God crushes your sexual freedom. Actually, submitting your life to God brings true sexual freedom. We find our true freedom when we accept God's authority in that area of our lives. Well then, look where the brokenness next comes to light. The first thing the man and woman have realized is that they're broken as individuals. And now they realize things with God are broken. Then the man and the wife and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, God says, this isn't what I planned for you. Shame and regret and hiding. I didn't make you for that. That could only come about by you deciding to seize authority for yourself. And this sin of deciding that we know best is the sin at the root of every other sin. And our first step on the road to being truly wise and truly healed is to admit we don't have the wisdom to decide what's best for ourselves. The man and woman have noticed that they're broken. They've noticed that things are broken with God. They're hiding from him. And now they see that things are broken between the man and woman. Remember back to chapter 2, God gave them to each other to serve him as a team. But now they're enemies. God asks, have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man responds to God by saying, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
The biggest irony here is that all this came about because the man and woman wanted to take charge of their own lives. And now they won't take responsibility for anything. It's all somebody else's fault. God's, or the woman's, or the serpent's. Just keep blaming someone or something else. And God goes on to tell a man and woman how it's going to be for them. He says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The first line there does not mean you'll constantly go weak at the knees about your husband. That's not what it's saying. It means your desire will be to dominate your husband. And his attitude to you will be to assert his authority harshly over you. In other words, God is saying the sexes are going to be at war from now on. God made them for teamwork, but now there's going to be antagonism toward one another. In subtle and not so subtle ways, they're going to try to get the better of each other. Let me just mention one more aspect of our brokenness that's mentioned here in Genesis 3. God says to the man, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Our relationship to the world around us is broken. And so all of our work is a struggle. We were made for work, but now much of the joy of work has been lost for us. That's because we're working in a world that's broken. That Bob Dylan song mentioned broken hands on broken plows. And that just about sums it up. Much of our work is frustrating because we are broken people trying to work with broken things. It's a struggle for us to make any progress in our work. We have to come, overcome obstacles before we can begin to get anywhere positive. And that's true whether you're working on a farm or working in an office. It's true whether you're working with the soil or whether you're struggling with bureaucracy of some kind. Bureaucracy has been called an iron cage. And yet it seems to be unavoidable when people try to work together. The system that's supposed to help is usually just as much of a hindrance and frustration to us. We all think that it's unique to the system we are trying to work with. But actually every human system is going to be broken in a greater or lesser degree. That's true of economic systems, socialism and capitalism and every other ism. They're all broken. Even our computer systems, they're constantly needing to be tweaked and corrected. Even Microsoft can't produce a system without flaws. Well, finally in Genesis 3, this brokenness is all summed up in a last tragic picture. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, those are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So it seems that God's intention had been for the man and woman to be eternally replenished by eating from another tree in the garden, the tree of life. But now that they've set themselves up as rivals to God, they're going to be denied access to that tree. And so God's promise from chapter 2 has come true. He promised them that when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And they did. Spiritually, something in them died immediately. Something broke. And physically, their bodies are now in bondage to decay. They have no access to the tree of life. And you can see that the chapter ends with a very clear message. There is no way back. We can't just turn around and start over again. God's creation is broken and we can't mend it. Humanity is broken and we can't mend ourselves. Doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists can ease some of the symptoms of our brokenness, but they can't mend us. Medication can mask our brokenness, but we're still broken. Now at this point you might have some objections to what I'm saying. You might feel that I'm painting a picture that's too bleak. You might say, well, okay, I can see the problems, but there is good too, isn't there? There are strong friendships in the world. There are strong marriages. There are loving parents. There are politicians who genuinely seek to serve the public. For every son or daughter who abandons their elderly parents, there are those who sacrificially care for their elderly parents. For every Jimmy Savile, there are many more nursery workers and teachers who genuinely pour good into young people's lives. For every natural catastrophe, there are a thousand beautiful sunrises. You might point out those things and you would be right. As the Bible progresses, it continues to show us that there is much good in the world. Even after Genesis 3. The Bible does not tell us things are as bad as they could be. It tells us they are not as good as they should be. And in fact, every good thing is a little pointer to what's been lost. When we see the sunrise or the loving parent, it makes us think, imagine what the world would be like if all the brokenness was gone. 
Imagine a world where good leadership was just normal and fair business was normal and people sharing what they had was normal. The good things in the world give us a hint of the way things should be. And they also make the brokenness all the more tragic. Because we still get glimpses of what the world could be like. What humanity could be like if it wasn't broken. Genesis 3 ends with a closed door. It tells us there is no way back from our brokenness. But there is a way forward. If human history is like a tapestry, you and I cannot go back and unpick the threads of that ugly part of the tapestry. But the rest of the Bible shows us God at work to continue weaving the tapestry. And in amongst all the brokenness, the Bible shows us God beginning to unfold his plan to make creation whole again. Or as the book of Romans puts it, his plan to liberate creation from its bondage to decay. If we had the time, we could follow that plan all the way through the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. But God's plan reaches a climax with Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ was not just some random good man or wise teacher. He was God's instrument for mending a broken world. That same New Testament passage tells us that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So as you and I come face to face with our own brokenness, the answer is not to try even harder to assert ourselves and to take control and to chase after what we want. The answer is to admit that chasing after what we want is the root of our whole problem. It can never solve the problem. Thousands of years of human history prove that for us. The answer to our brokenness is to admit we're broken. To admit that each of us plays our part in the rebellion against God that the Bible calls sin. Once we've got that far, we're ready to hear about God's solution. In Jesus Christ, God worked to reconcile us to himself. Jesus did that by dying on a cross in our place. The brokenness caused by humanity's sin was laid on Jesus' shoulders on the cross. He took it, and he took the punishment for it. And when we trust in him, we can find forgiveness for our rebellion and healing for our brokenness. We can be recreated from the inside out. And we can begin to see that healing work its way out in our own view of ourselves, in our relationships with other people, and even in our day-to-day work. 
The only way for us to mend any of those other areas of brokenness is to begin by attending to our broken relationship with God. We won't get anywhere with all those other things if we don't start with that vertical relationship with God. And the Bible promises that one day Jesus will return. And then we will hear God saying, I am making everything new. On that day, all those glimpses of goodness and purity are going to give way to a world of goodness and purity. The Bible calls it the new heaven and earth. It will be the home of all those who come to Jesus for healing in this life. At this point, I'm going to stop, and I want to give you opportunity for questions, comments. Hopefully, in fact, I would be pretty sure there's plenty for you to ask about. from the barrage or maybe you want to hear the Bob Dylan song again I don't know (laughs) any questions about things that came up maybe things in the Bible passage or things that I've said about it I knew I could count on you Martin question is, because I know a lot of you can't hear that, the question is, how would we imagine a world if the fall, as it's called, hadn't happened, if humanity hadn't fallen into sin? Well, I think that's part of the purpose of Genesis chapter 2, before the fall happens. There are glimpses there, and, and quite a full picture in some senses of what, of what that world would look like. There would be cooperation, there would be close fellowship with God, and actually we see, we see that picture again in the very last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and I think Revelation 21 and 22 are not taking us back to Eden, but actually that's where Eden would have ended up if there had been no sin and no salvation in Christ, the man and woman in obedience to God would have worked and formed that world that God will bring still in Revelation 21 and 22. His plan is not going to be thwarted, but his plan has come through the cross, which it wouldn't have done had there been no sin. So I don't think uh, Genesis 2 would have stayed the way it was. The the world would have been formed and developed into what we see at the very end of the Bible, which one day will be. 
question is, uh, the man and woman were given the command in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and fill the earth, so if there had been no sin, are you asking, would we be overpopulated, even more overpopulated? question is, is, would we not say that death seems to be a normal part of, of creation? It, it does seem normal because it's, it is normal to us. We don't know anything else. But you could just take the same question and ask it of the very end of the Bible. How is God going to work it out if then death is dead and gone? Well, I can't answer that. But certainly that's the case at the end of the Bible. There will be no more death. And so however God does it then is how he would have done it had sin not come. question is, how is it, and when we see disease in nature and humans and plants, how is it that the sin could have affected that? I think you could ask the same question about our spiritual situation. How is it that the sin could have, how could, it, could eating a tree from a tree have affected us spiritually? But the Bible says that neither physically or spiritually, things are not the same in either of those domains as they were before sin. And I obviously can't explain that to you, but the Bible tells us that it's so. I think Genesis 3 is very clear that nature itself is broken. It wouldn't have been hard for the man to farm the earth before sin, but now it is. And the Bible does not tell us all the little details we'd like to know about how that broke. But 
So yeah, I, I'm not the one to answer that question. But I think we can, what we can say is there's no doubt from the Bible that it was sin that caused the brokenness. And the pain in childbirth and everything else, yeah. Oh, uh, can I pretend I didn't hear that? Uh, the question was, uh, do I think Adam and Eve would have gone to hell? Uh, that means, you mean after they ate the fruit? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, it does seem if we carry on reading, that there is something, even though they were the ones who brought the sin, there was, there's some kind of grace of God in their lives. He gives them, they have been the, the cause of the world being broken, but he still, he gives them clothing, he gives them children, and there's some sense, I think, that they were aware of their sin and there, there might have been repentance but beyond that the, the Bible doesn't really give us details so if they, if they got to the point of repenting of their sin and trusting God again well it would be the same like anyone else in the Old Testament like Abraham or David the cross hadn't happened but if they got to the point of trusting in God well then anyone can repent and be saved so, I, yeah, I don't know the specifics, but certainly it's possible. Eh? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, because actually, even though the, the system of sacrifices wasn't given to later... In chapter 4, you see their sons, Cain and Abel, already offering sacrifices. So even before that system came, there was some understanding that we could show our sorrow over our sin by bringing a sacrifice to God. So they had some idea of that. The sacrifices didn't start with Moses. They started... They were obviously happening from the very beginning almost. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to this thing if the root sin is deciding that we know best, then when someone, as in Abraham's case, says, I'm going to trust God, then that's, that's true faith and yeah Christ's blood paid for Abraham's sin even though Abraham didn't know Christ in case of Adam and Eve when they sinned uh, God made them skins to cover themselves would that not be uh, taking the line of an animal to cover them skin would that yeah, not yeah. be the answer to a sacrifice for them temporarily yeah I think Ian has mentioned the point that in chapter 3 I didn't 
quote that verse or put it on the screen, but we're told that God made, they, they made uh, coverings of fig leaves, but God provided a better covering, which was animal skin. So as Ian has pointed out, that involved the death of an animal. So even there, God's giving them a little sign almost that he is able to cover their sin and that then ultimately as the whole Old Testament does, points to what he's going to do in Jesus Christ. Yeah. question is what about this new creation thing because as we all are very much aware we are still not what we should be and people observe that about us the, the Bible presents it two aspects of it it speaks about being born again and given new life and from that moment when someone puts their trust in Christ the Bible says that person is not what they were before. God has done a new creating work in their heart. But then the Bible also says that throughout the whole course of our lives, God is working to change us. And so there's a progressive element in that new creation as well. One way that I've heard it explained is if you imagine a, a broken down, dilapidated house and someone comes along and pays the money and buys that house, from that moment, things are not the same. That house is in new hands, and it has a different future ahead of us. But then it may take years before that new owner renovates and rearranges what he's bought. And I think that's a somewhat helpful picture of what happens to us. When we put our trust in Christ, God has bought us for himself. And it takes the rest of our lives for that to work its way out into our lives. And it won't be until the new heaven and earth when we are what we are going to be. And I think, too, when people look at Christians and say, well, that person's a Christian... But look at them. I think it's really helpful to take into consideration where was that person when God began to work in them. Because some people have had a very polished, privileged upbringing. And when they become a Christian, their outward behavior might not look all that different. Their hearts are different. But then imagine someone who has had no advantages in life at all. When God takes that person, they're not going to look as good outwardly as the polished person, but yet they're still very different from when God took them. So you've got to take into consideration where the person was when God stepped in and made them a new creation. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's helpful too. Martin says even the term born again implies that there's new life, but it takes a lifetime for that to develop and mature. So yeah, that's, that's helpful too. And I think that's why it's important for us as Christians not to think that there was a day when I prayed a prayer and trusted Jesus and that said I can get on with life because God's agenda is to keep changing us and working on us for the whole length of our life. And we need to be aware of that and uh, not shutting ourselves off to that. Is that a good point for us to turn towards the food? Are there any last questions before we do that? The question is, are people, do I think people are aware of their own brokenness? I, I would say, in most cases, almost certainly, yeah. I mean, well, there's Bob Dylan is very aware of it. And I think everybody has struggles in their lives, and people, I think, do sense they don't have the resources to cope with life, really, that things aren't able to be managed and I think sometimes uh, counseling approaches or the, the counsel that's given from outside the church is you just got to dig down deep and find the resources in yourself. But I think that just causes a lot of people to despair because they look in themselves for all that strength that they need and they don't find it there. So I would say I'm sure there are plenty of people who think that they're perfect and super man and super woman, but I think the majority of people are very aware of their own frailties. I mean, you can disagree with me on that. That's just my, my perception of... Tony's point is that God did promise that the Holy Spirit would convict us or show us our need for God and so the, the value then of reading the scriptures because God can use that to show us and maybe that, that's very helpful because what I was saying is people realize their frailties but probably what they don't realize is where to turn to find the, the healing or the, the help in their frailties and that's where obviously the Bible comes in because I do think Going back to something as uh, mundane as popular music, I think in a lot of ways that does give evidence that people are aware of sometimes what they see as futility in life and brokenness, especially the more thinking 
musicians and the, the way they write about things. They have all the right questions, but they just don't know what the answers are. 